So we're, we're looking at Grace Works. Uh, Paul, one of the early church leaders, planted some churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Back then, in his day, it was called Galatia, the region of Galatia. And having, plant, having planted some churches there, a year or so later, he, he hears about a couple of things that are going wrong, and he writes to them this letter. And if you've read any of the New Testament, you know that there's quite a number of Paul's letters in the New Testament. This is the first letter that he ever wrote. And um, he's furious in it. It's one of the angriest letters that you'd probably ever find in a religious text. He's pulling no punches. He says some very offensive, offensive things. And part of the reason we teach through, you know, as a church, we sometimes pick topics and we talk about them, but also the discipline sometimes of teaching through a whole letter, a whole book, and just going through it maybe verse by verse is useful because it means that we, we can't avoid the awkward bits or the controversial bits or the difficult bits. And Galatians certainly has some of those. And today, as we're going to read in a moment, Paul is not in a good mood. Um, today we're looking at the subject of the gospel, man's opinion or God's offer. Man's opinion or God's offer. But we're going to read from Galatians chapter 1. And I brought my Bible this week. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. So I'm going to be reading from there. And we're going to read quite a big chunk, start of the letter. Last week we, we looked at the introduction, gave an overview of the letter. And here we go from verse 6 all the way to verse 23. This is what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I still trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. The gospel message, the message of Christianity, is the medicine that we need to recover. The human race, all of us stand condemned before God. All of us um, due to suffer and experience the anger of God towards sin. We're those who are born as though we're in charge, and we live as though we're in charge. Whereas actually there is a God, ultimate reality is that he's in charge, and as a result of our rebellion from birth until now, 
we stand condemned. And the gospel's message is the medicine that we need. As, as Sarah's song beautifully put it, it is the breath back from God that we receive. It's the truth for us. It's not enough to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, come on, we can do this. We can, we can pray. We can talk to God. Outside of the gospel, there's no life, no breath in us, nothing that gives us a chance. And part of the reason we're looking at the book of Galatians today is because of something that happened 500 years ago. So 500 years ago, almost to the day, a man, a German monk named Martin Luther um, nailed a 95 thesis onto what was the university door of the small town that he was in in Germany. Basically, as a way of saying to the officials, let's have a discussion <laughs> because there's plenty of abuses that he was seeing. Or he said, plenty of abuses I'm seeing in the church, particularly with how we're treating people. Pastorally, he was concerned. He was concerned that the truth of God's word wasn't being preached like it should or enacted like it should. And so he said, let's, let's have a conversation. That conversation sparked a revolution that became known as the Protestant Revolution or the Reformation. And now 500 years on, churches like ours exist because of what he started. But Martin Luther's journey to faith was an interesting one because as a young man, he was, due to be, he was, he was going to school to be trained as a lawyer because his dad wanted him to. Um, but one day as he was walking somewhere, he was caught up in a big storm and he prayed to the saint. I can't remember the name of the saint. And he prayed to the saint and said, please, if, you, if my life is spared... I will become a monk. Who's not prayed that prayer before? Um, many of you probably. I will become a monk if you spare this or answer this prayer. Anyway, his life was spared and he kept his word. And so he became a monk. And not just any monk, he became like a really strict, uber devout monk. And he spent years trying to get right with God, trying to have a clean conscience before God. All the while aware of how sinful he was, how much he stood condemned because of his own rebellion. And for years, he pounded his fists against heaven's door, wanting to be accepted by God and concluding that he hated God because God was so holy. And yet in Martin's eyes was not as merciful as he needed him to be. And then one day as he was reading through the book of Romans, he saw the gospel message in the Bible and had a life changing moment. Started the Reformation movement, calling people back to the gospel as presented, the good news message as presented in the New Testament. And one of the earliest books that he wrote was a commentary on the letter to the Galatians. Hence why we're looking at it 500 years on from there. But the, Ameri the American, the gospel is the medicine that we need to heal us and restore us. And Martin Luther saw that. In fact, there was an American psychiatrist, a man named Carl Menninger. Who, um, who said once in one of his books, he said, I could empty 70% of the beds in my psychiatric ward, in the psychiatric ward of my clinic, if I could convince patients of four words, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, sin, we don't believe in sin, do we? It's <laughs> embarrassing. We don't talk about sin, do we? I mean, sin is something that's just reserved for slimming world, isn't it? Or, or is, if, it's, if nothing else, it's, it's just another word for guilty pleasure or some kind of, it's a religious word. That if you talk about sin, you see shutters come down and pity come up. Like, ah, oh, you're one of those religious people who have this sin, guilt, conscience issue thing. We don't talk about that. And yet, we still have just the same problems as perhaps this psychiatrist was talking about. I'm reading a book at the moment by... Um, a shame researcher called Brené Brown does a lot of TED Talks, if you know TED. 
And she talks not about sin and guilt. She talks about shame. And she says that our problem is that we are afraid of vulnerability and that we are racked, all of us, every day with feelings of shame and inadequacy. Guilt's not the problem. Shame is, she says. Actually, one of the things she says is that regardless of who you are, you experience shame and you, you, we fight against shame and vulnerability a lot of our lives. Women experience shame, she said, in the area of perfection. That for a woman, the messages of society are you must be perfect. And for a man, the messages of society are you must be strong. And when we feel imperfect or weak, we experience shame and inadequacy. We feel a disconnection to the people around us. In fact, in, in kind of quoting the messages of our society, she says, for women, it's this. Be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it. And don't take time away from anything like your family or your partner or your work to achieve your perfection. If you're really good, perfection should be easy. Women are told to dial the sexuality way up after the kids are down, the dog is walked, and the house is clean, but dial it way down for the school PTA meeting. And geez, don't confuse the two. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but women do be honest. Don't get too emotional, ladies, but don't be too detached either. Too emotional and you're hysterical, too detached and you're a cold-hearted blank. And for men, she says, men, for men, shame is failure. Failure at work, on the football field, in your marriage, in bed, with money, with your children. Shame is being wrong. Shame is being the guy you can shove up against the lockers. I know, as I read this list, I'm thinking, yeah, I recognize a lot of that. We don't talk about guilt and sin, but we're just as aware of our brokenness and disconnection as she was. In fact, we're living in a society that has uh, thrown off issues of meaning, but is still just racked with a concern for identity and belonging. We're lost. We need help. And in fact, if any of us were to, if any of us were willing to sit alone with our thoughts long enough without a, a screen or a distraction, we would realize our need for help. And that's the Christian message. The Christian message, is it just another opinion of how we can kind of find psychiatric relief for our problems? Or is it an offer from God for our salvation? You can tell what Paul thinks by the way that he writes. He's furious because he thinks they're losing something of extreme significance. In fact, when you, when you grasp the significance and importance of the gospel message, it has a profound effect on how you behave and how you behave towards the gospel message as well. When you've experienced it as life, as Luther did, it changes how you interact with others and prize and hold on to the gospel. Let me tell you a story. It's a story about a, uh, a Kenyan man named Joseph who became a Christian and attended a Billy Graham rally numbers of years ago. Billy, Billy Graham was an American evangelist and told Billy Graham his story of conversion and what happened to him. And they wrote it up because it was such a significant one. This is what they say. Joseph um, is a tall, slender Maasai warrior. Some time ago, he met a man along a dusty African road who told him the story of Christ and God's love that made forgiveness of sin possible. Joseph became a believer and rejoiced in this Jesus story. After I met Joseph, I was so excited that I just... Sorry, this is what Joseph says. After I met Jesus, I was so excited that I 
just knew everyone in my village would be happy to meet him also. So I went door to door, telling everyone I met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered. To my amazement, my people didn't, not only didn't care, but they became hostile. The men held me to the ground while the women began beating me with barbed wire. I was then dragged from the village and left to die in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole and there, after two days of passing in and out of consciousness, found he had the strength to get up. He was puzzled by the hostile reception from family and friends whom he had known his whole life and so decided that it, he decided, I must have left something important of the story out. So... I practiced the story over and over again and then limped back to tell my family and friends the good news again. I went again from hut to hut telling people about Jesus, the Jesus who died for us so that we might find forgiveness and we might know the living God. Again, they dragged me. They held me down and was beating me, opening anew the former wounds. They dragged me unconsciousness outside the camp and I was left for dead. I woke up two days later scarred and bruised but still alive. For the third time, I went back into my home village and started to witness. But they were waiting for me, and I was set upon, thrown to the ground, and as the beatings began, I passed out. When I awakened, this time, I was lying in my own bed. The folks who'd been whipping me had now become my nurses. Everyone in my village had become a believer in Christ. From Joseph's behavior, the people eventually saw the significance of the message that he was preaching. And Paul, who writes Galatians, is a man who saw what Joseph saw. As I mentioned, this was his first letter. And generally, Paul's letters begin with lots of you know, niceties and I thank God for you's. In fact, he writes a letter to a church in Greece, in Corinth, that was in a right state. They were behaving appallingly towards one another. And even in that letter, he starts the letter by going, oh, I thank my God for you. Every time I remember you, I thank God for you. In this letter, he begins, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. It's his first letter. Maybe, maybe he improved his style for the next ones and thought, oh, I just need to begin with some politeness. Maybe he had some English in him after all, I don't know. Paul's opening statement, I am astonished. That word astonished means astonished. It means I'm flabbergasted. I cannot believe that you're being so stupid in how you're behaving, is essentially what he's going. Are you kidding me? It's almost how he begins to say, are you kidding me? See, other people since Paul had been had, had come to the church and they'd said to them, oh, Paul's message that he gave you was good, but he left out a few things. I mean, the message that you got was okay, but actually what you need to add to what he gave you, well, you need, those of you who are men need to get circumcised if you want to properly become Christians and actually you need to just behave a little bit better, you know, sort your lives out a bit. I don't know, you need to add some things. Paul's message was okay. And you see, then they started talking about him and saying, oh, I see Paul, he's, he's a bit of a people pleaser. And he was basically just telling you what was polite because he knows it's not popular to tell men you need to get circumcised, adult men, because he knows that's not going to go down. So he changed the message essentially. Well, they were saying, oh, Paul, you see, he's a lesser apostle. I mean, Jesus commissioned the 12 apostles, and Paul wasn't one of them, and he's a lesser apostle. What, he, what Paul's brought you, it's just, it's just his opinion. Here's the real deal. Imagine if you came here and you heard about Jesus, and then you went to another church and said, oh, it was lovely what they told you down the road, but actually the baptism that you got there wasn't a proper one. 
You need to do it again here. You need to you know, pray this prayer. You need to, I don't know, pray west, face west whenever you pray. You need to turn around three times and you know, hold on to your right earlobe whenever you talk to God. Because what they gave you is okay, but it's not enough. We'd be quite angry or concerned about that. So let's talk about this. Was what Paul was saying, Matt, just his opinion? Um, we're often those who are just, we are impressed by others and their opinions. And their opinions, people's opinions of us count. And I've learned recently, my son, who's seven, is, a, is already a product of his society. Um, because we sit down for dinner and we feed him some food. And he says, I don't want that. I don't like it. And we say, you've never had it. And he says, oh, it's just my opinion. It's just my opinion, mate. Like, I don't like this. I'm like, okay. Why have you heard that phrase? Which is fine when you're talking about your food. But then we say, it's time to clean your teeth. He says, I don't want to. It's just my opinion. I'm like, see, who told you your opinion was valid in this matter, son? Um, he's a product of his age. And we live in a society where every opinion is equally valid. When we report the news, we'll have an expert. But then we'll just pick some random bloke off the street. What's your opinion? Ah, he disagrees with the expert. Who should we believe? Like, not every opinion is equally valid, you plonkers. Anyway, the problem, yeah. Is the gospel just the latest opinion? Would Paul just appear on the TED Talk stage? You know, TED, I don't know if you watch TED Talk, I like them, but the tagline for TED is ideas worth spreading. And is this just another idea that's worth spreading? Well, Paul doesn't think so. And so in this section, Paul gives TED a run for his money. In verse 8, he erupts. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be cursed. And then as if to kind of make sure that people knew he's not just ranting. He didn't, that wasn't an accidental slip. He then repeats himself in verse 9 again, let him be accursed. Paul is calling down a holy curse uh, of condemnation and of separation on anybody who would preach a message separate or different from the message that he preached. The message of forgiveness by faith in the finished work of Jesus and that alone as being good enough to make us acceptable before God. If anybody adds anything to the gospel message, Paul says, let them be accursed. In fact, the word that he uses in Greek is the word anathema, which we still use, or some of us do, still use today. You occasionally hear people on the news, they use the word anathema, like it's some holy curse. It's the worst thing you can say. It's offensive. It's appalling. And Paul says, if anybody preaches a message that is different, even the slightest way, from this message of salvation, let them be cursed, cut off from the people of God, a plague on their houses. This is strong language. And actually, for for those of us who are modern, it makes us feel quite nervous because it sounds like the ravings of a religious fanatic. Curses, death and condemnation. We've seen what the likes of religious fanatics do. They fly planes into buildings or they cut off people's heads on global television. So how does Paul answer that objection, that concern? Is Paul just another raving religious fanatic? Well, he says a couple of things about that. First of all, he says, I'm not living for the approval of man anymore. I'm living for the approval of God. By inference, he says, I was when I Behave differently. I was living for the approval of man, but I've changed. But then he says, I didn't, you know, he says, I used to be a religious fanatic myself. I used to be a Christian murderer. And he alludes to some of his own biography. The first time we meet this man who wrote this in the Bible, he is at the 
murder of the first Christian martyr. And people are leaving their coats at his feet as if to seek his approval. And he's looking after them as if to give approval. Yes, this is good. People were picking up rocks and hurling them at Stephen, who was one of the followers of Jesus. And he was there giving approval for it. We then read that he was involved in dragging off men and women and throwing them into prison for being Christians. Paul was the kind of religious fanatic that would break into your home while you're with your kids having dinner and rip you away from your family to throw you into prison because of how you were behaving and worshipping, because of what you believed. That's the kind of man he was. He was a man full of righteous indignation and holy zeal and fury at what these Christians were doing. In Acts, book in the Bible, chapter 9, we read that he was breathing out murderous threats towards the church. And he goes and seeks permission from some local authority to imprison more Christians. He seeks permission. What kind of a man does that? A man who is convinced that he's right and serving God. And then on his way to a town to go and imprison Christians, a light flashes around him. He's knocked off his horse falls onto his feet, he's blinded, and he hears a voice. It's Jesus speaking to him, saying to him, I'm the one you're persecuting. Paul becomes a Christian, and he's forever changed. He then goes into Arabia, as we read, into the wilderness. He goes into Damascus. He spends three years telling people about Jesus. So convinced is he that the Christians are right, he becomes their foremost leader and then it's only after three years he goes to Jerusalem just to, to, to confirm that he's got this right. He goes to the original Christians and asks them, is this right what I'm doing? Is this the right message? But it was three years after getting this message from Jesus himself. In fact, let's, I just want us to read together from the book of Acts some of how Paul behaved having become a Christian. This is when he goes to Galatia. The church that he's writing to here, this is uh, the historical account of what happened. So him and Barnabas have been in one town, he's a friend of his, and um, they've healed someone who was sick. And as a result, the locals are treating them like gods and are about to sacrifice things in their honor. And they stop them because they say, we're not gods, we're just men, but this is the message of salvation. And then in the next verses, it says this, but some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But then, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, where they, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul goes from throwing stones at Christians to having stones thrown at him. Um, so convinced is he that he's right and that this message is from God. And it's not just the latest opinion. That even though he's almost dead, he gets back up and like Joseph, the Maasai warrior, goes back into the city that had just tried to kill him. He's undeterred in his witness. And then he appoints elders in the churches before he goes. What's the significance of that? What's an elder we just read that and think, oh, an older man, an older person. He just appoints them and then off he goes. Well, these aren't old men necessarily, but these are elders are respected men of, in a community that are given the task of protecting and preserving 
the work of God in a church. Um, it's not just, he doesn't just appoint elders to these people who believe as a way of making this official and then off he goes. Like, oh, we can now, you know, good luck, you create your own website, come up with your own name and you'll be fine. He puts elders in a community as if to say, you're here to guard these people now from these Jews who've just been trying to kill me. I want you to guard this church. An elder then is someone who is supposed to courageously defend the church. Hence, when Paul writes to Galatians, he starts his letter saying, I'm astonished. Like, what the heck are these elders doing? If you guys are starting to believe this, what's happened to these guardians of truth? Why have they let this bad news in? An elder is someone who that when society shifts or disapproves in its opinions of the church, an elder is someone who's supposed to ensure that the church doesn't cave, doesn't lose its gospel. There's a, a book that was written recently called Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. And many of us are so used to, what should we do? What should we do? Let's be active. Because actually, elders are there to ensure the church doesn't just do stuff, but it stands there and says, this is the gospel. This is the medicine that we need. If we lose this, we lose the farm. We've lost the lot. What are we doing? Singing songs, listening to a nice talk? No, the human race stands condemned, if not for the gospel message. You change it one bit, and you've got no message of rescue. You see, as churches, we can disagree about all kinds of different ideas and doctrines and understandings. You can play around with, what do you think about, you know, prophecy in the church or healing or the gift of languages? Or what do you think about baptism for infants or for adults? I don't know. You can talk about all kinds of things. And often churches start because they have a particular emphasis that differs from a church down the road. And that's not necessarily bad. They can be friends. They can champion one another. We can sing the same songs or we can say, well, I, I believe this. It's slightly different from you, but we're still brothers. Let's, let's just work together in this town and believe that God's going to use us both. But when a church changes the gospel, they're not a church. They've lost, they've lost the one thing that they had that was supposed to bring life to people. And we're in a day where you go to some liberal churches and they'll say, oh, it's lovely you've had the experience of Jesus. And I'm thrilled that Jesus is for you. Just don't say that Jesus is the only way. I mean, because there's lots of other good people in other religions and good people can be saved, can't they? You just have to be a good person, a good Buddhist, good Muslim, good Christian, good secular humanist, just good people. You can be nice, polite, middle-class people. It'll be fine. Don't, just don't say Jesus is the only way. To which we say, well, what about us bad people? I, I, you don't know my heart. How does a bad person get saved? I know, you've got to be good. Anyway. Or you have, on the other hand, some more conservative churches that fall into a different era. They say Jesus is the only way, but make sure you dress differently and stop swearing and make sure you read your Bible regularly and pray often because without those things, you need to do those things in order to you know, work up some feeling of salvation, of changing the gospel. The gospel is salvation by faith in Christ. Faith alone, not behavior. And Jesus, the Bible says, is the only way of salvation. If you're in a burning building and the fireman comes and says, hey, follow me, we're going this way. That's a little bit narrow mind. I'm going to try this way, thank you. Don't just tell me I have to go that way. I'll go any way I like. No, you say that, you lose the message. And so as a result, Paul puts elders in the church. As such, churches ought to be known for being gospel-centered, not for being able to dance well on Saturday night television. The gospel is our hope. It is our rescue it is our forgiveness of sin. It is what removes our shame and our fear. Whether you call sin our issue or like Brené Brown shames our issue, the gospel is the means of rescue. 
It's, it's by which we, we stop being so concerned by the people around us that we're crippled and enslaved to their opinions of us. And it's by which we're liberated to live for God and in turn change the way we behave towards one another. See, Paul says, I was, I'm saved from being a religious fanatic and a people pleaser. The, the gospel has liberated me. It is not just man's opinion. It is God's offer. Let's read verses 15 and 16 of what Paul says in Galatians. He says this. When he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul's conviction that the gospel message is not just the latest idea, but is God's offer of rescue, begins a long way before he wrote this letter. He says, 14 years earlier, God spoke to me. But actually, begins a long way before that. Because even before I was born, Paul says, God set me apart. And he decided that when he... This is the amazing thing about the grace of God. Christians were being killed... Um, were being persecuted for being Christians, and God let it happen. In fact, he let it happen at the hands of the man that he had decided would one day be the man who planted churches on his behalf. Couldn't you have saved the lives of those Christians, God? Why didn't you save Paul early doors? But in God's infinite mercy and wisdom, he thought to himself, when I want to reach and plant some churches in Galatia, who shall I get to do it? That murder, that Christian murderer over there, him. And Paul says, he set me apart before I was born, made that decision about me even then. God called Paul by his grace, Paul says. Again, this was not Paul's effort or energy, but God's kindness to him. He says that God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. It was God's pleasure, not obligation. And that word reveal is the word apocalypse in the Greek. We think of apocalypse as being the end of the world. But it's a word that just means revelation or unveiling of something. When the one who had set me apart before I was born was pleased to apocalypse his son to me, he did. Paul had a mini apocalypse, a revelation. His whole world was turned on its head. And he wants us to see this. That God's This message is not an optional idea. We can monkey around with all kinds of things in the church. We can monkey around with the type of music, the style of services, the length of services, the amount of meetings. You can monkey around with, I don't know, the flowers or the pews or whatever you want. But as soon as you monkey around with the gospel, you lose the whole thing. And so Paul's fury at this church is holy, but it's also parental. Because changing the gospel damns people to eternity. It kids people to think that they're saved when they're not. And it robs Jesus of his glory because we say, Jesus, your cross was wonderful. So thank you so much for dying for me. But I'm now going to do my bit as well. And that robs Jesus of the glory that he is due because it's only by him and his work that we get saved in the first place. So there's all these cults around, Christian, so-called Christian cults whether it's Jehovah's Witnessism or Christian science or Mormonism, say, well, Jesus gave us this, but then here's another little bit. They're leading people astray. They're damning people for eternity. 
They're kidding people into thinking that they're safe and they're good and they're well and things are going right for them, that God is pleased with them, and they're not. And that's why Paul is furious. And it's difficult in our day to say things like that because people accuse you of being narrow-minded. I don't care. It's not my narrow mind. It's, it's God's message. And actually, it's our job to be faithful postmen and women. A postman who changes the letter before he delivers it is not a good postman. And I was so narrow-minded of you. I wanted you to open it and change it and make it a little bit easier for me to understand. We're supposed to be those who faithfully deliver things. And so Paul says that his authority, despite what the people in the church were saying about him, he says, my authority came straight from God himself. You know, there's different types of authority. I can give you a, a position in a business and say, oh, you, this is your title. I can give you a clipboard and a fluorescent jacket. This is your title. You have authority now. It's positional authority. It's the lowest type of authority. The highest is personal authority, where someone knows you and you've allowed them authority into your life. But then God said, and Paul says there's a different authority. There's a spiritual authority that he's been entrusted with by God. He's been commissioned by God. And as such, he submits even himself to his own message. He says, even if I or an angel, a revelation, whatever they or he or she or it calls themselves, whether Muhammad or Joseph Smith or whatever, whether I or some other revelation gives you another gospel, let them be accursed, he says. So he subjects his message to his feelings as well as to revelation. And in churches like ours, that actually bites quite a bit because we all have our personal preferences of what the Lord is saying to me on any given day because we're Christians. We know we have God living in us and he speaks to us through his word, through the, the church, through himself. As Christians, however, our experience of God needs to be submitted to the Word of God. And if ever we feel God saying something to us that is in contrary to what the Gospel says, guess what? You're wrong. It might have been bad pizza. I don't know. It might not have been God. It might have been, but maybe you misunderstood. Or actually, it's good, but don't believe it wholesale because the Word says this. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Even if I or an angel of heaven appear, reveal another Gospel to you, let them be condemned. And as a church, we mustn't treat the gospel lightly. We've got to hold on to this fiercely because it is our message of salvation. If we change it one bit, people are damned for eternity and we're not even sure we're saved in the first place. That's why Paul's so serious in this. And so progress in the church, and, and we're a society that is obsessed with progress. You know, you can't, you can't ever be seen to be left behind by the flow of history. Well, if I lived in... Nazi Germany, I would have liked to have been left behind by believing the truth and letting other people behave how they want. But if we're so concerned with being left behind, the, the march and steady stream of progress, but actually progress, if you're going in the wrong direction, often looks like turning around and going, exactly back, going back exactly the same way you were going. It's not progress to just carry on going in the same direction. If we're believing other things, if we're putting our hope in other things, if we're looking to other things to remove our shame, sometimes Progress looks like going back to where you started. Because what Paul says, he says, I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted, not me, not my message. He doesn't write to the church and say, I'm so sad because we had such a lovely fellowship together and now you, you, you disagree with me. What's going on, guys? He doesn't say, I'm so sad because I've, I've got you on my list of sponsors on my website. Now you've, we're out of, what's going on? He says, I'm so, I'm, you've so quickly deserted, not even 
my message. You so quickly deserted him. A desertion of the gospel, a putting our hope in anything else, getting excited about other things for salvation. We're going to rely on our faith, our prayers, our energy, our effort. They'll get us across the line. Anything else is to desert him. That Christians, we're to be those who prize him and his gospel and not desert him in any way, shape or form. And we're going to respond this morning by breaking bread and remembering him who gave himself for us. And I suppose this morning has been a slightly more serious message from Paul about the importance and centrality of the gospel, that it isn't just the latest opinion. You don't fancy it. There's lots of other good speakers or good ministries or talks or things online. You can do whatever you like. Find someone to tick with the right spots and say the right things. And what you need is a little bit of easy believism, self-help speak, and that'll fix you. Help you get rid of your shame. There's only one way we're saved. By Jesus and his death on the cross that for us became the means of our forgiveness. And it's by faith in him and in him alone that any of us have got any hope at all. You don't need to add anything to your faith. Your faith is enough. And it's your faith in him that saves you. Jesus himself, our saviour. We're going to respond together by breaking bread and giving thanks to God for all that he's done for us. The way that we do it in this church is there's a table at the back, a table at the front. There's bread and then juice. There's also gluten-free at the back. And I'd encourage you to Grab a big bit of bread off. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. As we break bread and take the juice, we're remembering it's only because of you, Jesus, that we stand any chance at all. It's what Jesus has done on the cross that gives us hope of what happens after death. And outside of him, there is no hope. There is no help. No one else is coming. Nothing else can happen to rescue us. Father, thank you for this message Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you that it is the life in our lungs. It is, God, our reason for celebration, our reason to be cheerful. Our hope does not come from the things of this world. We're not relying on the doctors to fix us or the psychiatrists or the books that we're reading or our friends even, God. It is your message of salvation through your Son. But though those other things are good and useful, God, we put our hope in you, King Jesus. And you alone. We thank you that we don't need to add anything, God. We can be as rude as we like and still be saved. We can push in the queue to get the cups of tea after church and still be forgiven and saved because it's not down to our effort and energy, but entirely your grace for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.